I had a war chest of about three and a half million dollars. Mark Martin is strapping into his troll. Based on what we had going on, I had enough money to do it for two years. Mark Martin from Batesville. Bill France Jr. gave me and Mark Martin an application to the 1988 Daytona 500. And not enough can be said for these guys that built this team from the ground up in two years. But if I didn't win a race, if I didn't show a blue sky to, to potential sponsors that wanted to get on board, there was an end in sight to my, uh, to my NASCAR career. The Motor Racing Network presents The Many Hats of Jack Roush. Mark Martin drives up high out of turn number four, comes out of the corner, and every person in this grandstand is cheering him on. He comes down and he will win the AC Delco 500. It has been a long, hard road for Mark Martin. I butted head. I mean, I had butted head with Jack Roush, but I butted head with Jack a lot early in the years, but we made it and we did it together. Jeff Burton wins at Daytona. He takes the 42nd Pepsi 400. Everything that I do in my racing and, and uh, you know, when my son's racing and stuff, I always, one of the decisions I'm making, I always go through my mind, what would, you know, what would Jack do? Carl Edwards is a first-time winner in the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series. They did not hold one thing back from me. We gave it the best effort, and I think that's very noble, and I'm honored to be associated with him. From the Motor Racing Network Studios in Concord, North Carolina, here is your host, Woody Kane. Welcome to another edition of MRN Presents The Many Hats of Jack Roush. I'm Woody Kane. In week eight of our journey through the life and accomplishments of Jack Roush, we explore his interests and accomplishments outside of the racetrack. When Jack was working for Ford in the 1960s, he was drawn to the manufacturer's extensive motorsports activities. After leaving the company, he partnered with Wayne Gap in the early 70s and began his venture into racing. It was here that he decided to form his own company in 1976, Jack Roush Performance Engineering, based on his success on the track and his background in the field. Not long after, Jack met Evan Lyle, who would help the company grow from 26 employees to over 4,000. I met Jack Roush when I was 19 years old. My dad actually introduced me to him. Summer job, I was gonna sweep floors. We, li we literally had 26 employees in one little building in Livonia, Michigan when I first met Jack. He was 39 or 40 years old when I first met him and uh, he had his little business going uh, that was really involved in building high performance engines mostly at the time. Um, and so I started sweeping floors for him and then the next uh, summer I came back from college and his dad was there and he, he brokered a deal between the two of us where I needed to go into the office and help Jack with the office side of things because back then and still to this day, Jack Roush doesn't spend much time in the office. You know, he's all about being on the shop floor. Back then, you know, when you were looking for Jack, you didn't go to his office, you went to the cylinder head room because he'd be back there porting ahead, you know, because he had some idea about how he could make his engines better for that particular weekend. And uh, I just worked my way up uh, in the business working for Jack. I was a CFO for a while, and then in 2001, I became CEO of uh, Roush Industries and then ultimately Roush Enterprises. Jack knew early on that he wanted his company to accomplish more than just racing. With his engineering background, he started building motors for other teams and used those resources and profits to put back into his own racing teams. Lyle said once that process started working, the company grew. He never set out to have a business as large as we have today. That was never his goal. Um, his goal was to be able to do things that were technically interesting to him, to satisfy his curiosities that way, and to be competitive. And so as he got into motorsports, it, it helped us by having all these other interesting projects. It gave us really the technical resources in order to, to get up on playing in motorsports. And it sort of it, it, uh, builds on itself, you know, and then the race teams got to be bigger than the other business and they, it's, they sort of stair-stepped up. 
But I don't think Jack ever really set out to have the biggest business. As a matter of fact, I think one of the things that's misunderstood about Jack, I mean, he's, he's a dynamic guy. He's fiercely competitive. He's fiercely loyal. And he also is a teacher. And he, he taught in school, actually. People don't realize that. But one of the things that Jack did early on when he uh, left the auto industry and started his own business and he was racing full time, he realized that if he taught school, he could race in the summers because he had his summers off. So he was a community college teacher and teaching physics and um, uh, different things like that. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of people that he taught that worked for the company for a long time after that. But that teacher side of Jack, I think, is why the business has become what it is today. He's um, much like the way he's found drivers in NASCAR, he's been a great guy to, to recognize something in somebody and then go ahead and give them the assets to see what they could do with it. Roush Industries was primarily racing-focused, but eventually expanded into other fields. Today, the company is involved in many diverse interests that people wouldn't necessarily expect from an organization that historically built engines. And so we are involved today, you know, what started building high-performance engines. Now we work still on a lot of high-performance engines all the way uh, through amusement park rides. We've got programs today that are involved. We literally have rocket scientists working for us, you know, and we're doing things that are involved in, in, in putting uh, rockets into orbit. And it's, so it's the gamut all the way in between. Um, so it's hard to pick out any one particular project. I'm really excited about the things that are going on in the auto industry. That There's a lot of disruptive technology today. We're in a position to be involved with uh, helping people with autonomy and electrification and all the interesting things that are happening in the auto space. It's creating a lot of, uh, a lot of exciting uh, opportunities for the company today. Some of the companies under the Roush Industries umbrella are Roush Performance, Roush Cleantech, Roush Fenway Racing, and Performance Assembly Solutions. With such a wide diversity of interests ranging from NASCAR to the main shop in Michigan, Jack Roush Jr. says his dad's schedule is all over the map. His schedule is still really pretty intense. He spends a lot of time on the road still. He does spend at least one or two days a week in North Carolina. He only spends maybe two, three days in Michigan per week, sometimes less. He's really focused on the race teams, and he has been really forever, you know, but he'll also stay, you know, involved and be very aware of what's going on up here as well. Jack Roush has always been focused on pushing technical limits and seeing how far engineering can go. As Jack himself explains, this mindset helped him develop a key safety feature in NASCAR racing that is seen today as standard, roof flaps. Well, the, the fact was that the, the cars were getting airborne because they were getting, cars were getting less square and more round, and they were able, if you turned it sideways, it could uh, gener it think it was an airplane, model airplane wing without a tail. Anybody who's built model airplane wings knows you need a tail so that the thing doesn't roll backwards. As you thrust it into the air, the, the tail will try to, the, the wing will try to lift forward and the, the tail will pass the, the, the wing it. So the car would do the same thing. You'd roll it, it'd get turned sideways at Daytona or Talladega or Atlanta or Michigan, and it would roll into the incoming wind. The rear wheels would pick up, and the for next thing you know, you'd see the underside of the car, and then it would come airborne, and then, then all hell would break loose whenever it, uh, it finally touched the ground again. That caused great trepidation and great anxiety among the insurance companies 
and the, the, all the competitors felt that they were putting uh, their drivers and their their, their fans at risk with uh, with what happens if they go sideways. So Bill France very much didn't want to he didn't want mufflers on the car, and uh, and, and he didn't want uh, he didn't want uh, the engines to, to be quiet, and he didn't want them to go slow enough that uh, they would not have this tendency to go airborne. So they invited uh, General Motors and Ford to uh, use their wind tunnels uh, to uh, to try to figure out how to upset the, the the air on the top of the car, so that it would not uh, think it was an airplane wing if you turned it sideways. And uh, Gary Acor, really, uh, who was a General Motors aerodynamics at the time, uh, he had the answer. But we uh, NASCAR asked three race teams or asked for volunteers on race teams to figure out if they would figure out mechanisms to, to let the, the, the deck lid of the car rotate around to the roof of the uh, center of the roof or area of the roof and upset the air so it wouldn't think it was a wing. The wind tunnels wouldn't allow them to do this test because they were afraid it would blow the deck lids off and uh, would tear up their wind tunnel. So they got a flatbed truck, went to the Darlington Jetport, and took uh, Bill France Jr.'s uh, Hawker airplane that had three big jet engines on it, put a pitot tube on the flatbed of the trailer, lined it so that uh, they could put the, the jet engines at it, and they blew 200 mile an hour air at the thing uh, at 45 degrees, which is where they decided what that was the lift on, liftoff point of the car. The car struggled against, tried to go airborne against the jet engine they stretched and the wheels come off the ground and the, the turnbuckles were it's one of the cars didn't blow away the deck lids would deploy and uh, and uh, we had a deck lid that had uh, hinge points up inside the back light of the car so that ours would achieve the the, the greatest uh, uh, displacement of the deck lid across the roof and of course it bent the roof and it bent the uh, deck lid and it bent the roll cage Everybody had visions of this darn thing uh, going through the grandstand, the, the fence, and the, you know, and hurting somebody. So all three cars uh, that they put on the flatbed had solutions that they thought were unacceptable. And uh, we were lamenting the fact that our test had failed. And Gary Aker, the aerodynamics General Motors at the time, he owns a wind tunnel in Concord today. But uh, he said, you know, it's a shame that we couldn't do it, but we just need two little fences. And, uh, and, uh, on the roof we don't need to have something as big as a deck lid flopping up there we just need some fences that would open up so he, and he said but we can never do that and uh, in my mind's eye of having built a bunch of model airplanes and uh, been an application engineer for a lot of things I said well let's 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 stop let's think about this a minute here where do these fences need to be and he showed me about 14 inches long and 8 inches high and they need to deploy toward the as the air started to come over the back of the, the, the car as the car turned backwards and things they need to be hinged at the front so he defined what these fences would look like I said I, I, I believe me and my guys I think that, that if I put my guys to work at it I think we could probably solve this problem so we took some composites that I'd used for bodies for the uh, IMSA cars for the road race cars we took some uh, flight control cables that uh, I, I was familiar with that were used for airplanes that, uh, that I had an interest in. And we took our uh, metal uh, model making uh, capability that we had and we made uh, tools to do a receiving flange for the flaps going down inside the in, uh, passenger compartment. We made iteration number one. I offered it up with a piece of roof off of a Ford. They, they cut uh, the 
openings of a, I don't know if it was a Chevrolet or if it was another Ford, but it wasn't my car. They, they cut the openings and put this roof lap uh, apparatus on the roof. And for 10 years, that was on every, that design with the springs, with the cables, with the, the carbon fiber configurations. Uh, it had, uh, it was, it, until we went to the car tomorrow, that was the, the package that was design iteration number one. I don't know how many thousands of those darn things we've we've made in the 20 years since we initiated them, but it's been a lot. While Jack is known for being a savvy businessman, he's also just as recognized for his signature hat. Jack says it was a quick decision that led to a lifelong association. I was actually at the Detroit Grand Prix with my road race cars on a Friday. Uh, with On the same weekend, we had a race at... Uh, at Pocono on a on a uh, on a Saturday and Sunday, and I was getting ready for a Saturday race at uh, at the Detroit Grand Prix. The Trans Am uh, Series uh, sedan race was a was a uh, the B main to a Formula One race that was in town, and so I had uh, four or five cars, four or five road race cars there, and I had four or five sponsors who were all standing in line with. Uh, with uh, their hats for me to put on my head. So I was gonna make three of them mad. I think I had four cars that day. I was gonna make three of them mad if I only put uh, the hat of one of the other, of one of the four on my head. And I looked at that and my secretary was there and I says, I told her we were at the base of the of the Rinsen Center, which is down a big commercial uh, building downtown Detroit. I said, go up and find, go up and find a men's store in the Rinsen Center and get me a straw gentleman's hat that he would wear on it to go to church on Sunday. I said, I'm going to wear that and I'm not going to wear these ball caps today. And so she brought me down a seagrass fedora that uh, was from a Canadian sponsor, which was just across the river, the Detroit River, and that I was looking at the place where the hat was built. And uh, so that became my hat. my signature hat that I uh, I've worn ever since. Penny Parson really cast it in stone when he said he called me the Cat in the Hat. That would stuck with me. I, everybody, if I'm not wearing a hat, they went, "Where's your hat, Jack?" Another lifelong association for Roush has been aviation. It had been in my interest as a five, six-year-old. I built plastic or built balsa wood and uh, crepe paper, uh, glued to, tester glued together model airplanes. P-51 was my favorite, rubber band power to start with, and I had in power had engines as a teenager, as 10, 11, 12 years old. I had actually had money that I was making for my lawn mowing business and my jobs. I was able to buy uh, buy model pl- airplane engines and buy uh, buy kits of things to make bigger, uh, faster, and more complex uh, model airplanes. But model airplanes have been my interest. In 1984, when I was uh, start end of my race, road racing program, got it started, I had figured out that the uh, most of the road race tracks were not close enough to major uh, communities that, uh, that you had a reasonable drive from, a, from the airport to the racetrack. So I needed to have an airplane that would, that would go into smaller airports and that could be operated safely. So I bought a 421 Cessna, which was about the same size as a Mustang. In 1992, he purchased a P-51 Mustang from the World War II era. It started him down a path that led to his own pilot's license and immersed him in a culture of aviation enthusiasts, history buffs, and national heroes. Evan Lyle says Jack isn't a big car buff despite the racing connection, 
but has always been an avid aviator. He has a beautiful museum and we have a lot of stuff, that we, cars that we've worked on, but that's not what it's about. It's always been about flying for him. He loves aviation. Uh, I think, I think, I personally think that a lot of what attracted him to NASCAR was that to move around and do this sport, you needed to be a pilot and fly small airplanes, especially in the beginning. And he definitely wanted to. We used to go up and down the road in a Cessna 421, which is the plane Jack learned to fly on. And uh, we would, a couple of us would, you know, pile on the plane and go down to, uh, from Michigan to Liberty, North Carolina, where our first shop was. And you'd go down there on Monday or Tuesday for a day or two, and then we'd come back up. And um, Jack would be up front riding with uh, Dave Zantop, who still flies with to today. And uh, every once in a while, you'd be sitting in the back, and we'd be talking about the day. And all of a sudden, the plane would start, you know, moving around, and you what the heck is going on? you look up and, well, Jack was under the hood because, you know, Dave was really his pilot training him. And so he was doing his IFR training. And so I used to joke that uh, with myself and Jeff Smith, who uh, used to be president of Roush uh, Racing, that we, uh, we should have got certificates because we were experimental passengers as Jack Roush learned to fly. So I spent a lot of time in an airplane with Jack. He's a great pilot. Um, and, uh, definitely is his passion. Motor Racing Network analyst and NASCAR Hall of Famer Rusty Wallace is a fellow aviation enthusiast and says most of the time Jack is a pretty serious guy. But get him talking about flying and everything changes. Some of the best things I've had is when Jack said, hey, I want to go to, we're going to go to, uh, to Oshkosh. And he goes, hey, I want to fly up with you in your airplane. I flew Jack Roush and my Learjet to Oshkosh. We landed there and hung out with Chuck Yeager. And we flew P-51 Mustangs, and it was just an incredible time. You know, it was a side of Jack Rouse I'd never seen in my life. It was 100% aviation-related. And when we went back to the racetrack, it was, hey, Rusty, how you doing? But it wasn't, hey, buddy, like you were when we went airplane flying, you know. And every single time I talked to him, which the last time I talked to him, was at the Southern 500 at driver's meeting because they had all the Hall of Famers there. And when I went in there, he, he was the type of guy who kept coming up to me and said, you remember this? You remember that? You remember when we did this? Or remember when we did that? He was just a king of saying, you remember this. And he remembers more stuff than I did, you know. But, uh, you know, I, I, I like talking to Jack when it comes to aviation because he's so cool to talk to about that stuff. I mean, here he's designing all these trick parts to build uh, his own P-51 design engine that they had in the war, you know. He made it better. And... Uh, Stuff like that. So, I mean, we can talk cars because everybody talks cars, but it's pretty hard for everybody to talk aviation, and he can do that. Jack's love for aviation definitely brought many highs into his life through the years, but also some very low lows. On the next episode of The Many Hats of Jack Roush, we dive into the turbulent time of Jack's flying career and some of the worst moments of his life. Until next time... I'm Woody Kane. Today's program was a presentation of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord, North Carolina and Daytona Beach, Florida. The Many Hats of Jack Roush was written and produced by Rich Colbreth, Tyler Burnett, Alexa Henrian, and Brian Nelson. Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network. <laughs>